Today we're going to do a double header. Uh, we don't do this a lot in here, and so we're going to try and do two chapters of Judges. And you know, Judges is a funny book because, in many ways, and one of them is that it tends to have kind of a repetitious nature. Um, you know, judges who are raised up tend to, you know, save people who have been going through a lot of hardship on, you know, which is kind of their own fault. Uh, the judge helps to deliver them from their enemies, and things are pretty good for a while, and then things go south again, and people forget all about God, and the whole story starts all over again. So, you know, it's probably, there's no reason to really dwell on one after the other um, over and over, so I think we're going to do two chapters today. Um, just as kind of an overview of the book of Judges. There are 12 judges who are mentioned in the book, um, but there are additional judges mentioned in other books, like uh, 1 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, um, Kings. Second Chronicles. Yeah. <clears throat> but what is a judge? Let's start out by saying that this is a funny Hebrew word that might actually, let me see here if I've got it written down, Shaphat. I am not a Hebrew scholar, by the way. I know very little Hebrew. I know only what my concordance tells me. So, uh, you know. <laughs> Shaphat, don't even want to try and write it in Hebrew. It's funny because Judges, it's a verb. The author of Judges uses it as a verb, not a title. So the people who are called Judges are not, are not crowned as a judge or anointed as a judge. They are people who judge. Does that make sense? And so the verb for Shaphat... <coughs> really means, and I, I, again, I have to write this down. It can mean a judge in kind of a judicial sense where you make a decision. Good morning. Good morning. Make a decision about uh, some kind of lawful <clears throat> or civil issue. But it can also mean to govern, <clears throat> as in to lead. And so if you have you know, your fancy NIV, sometimes they'll have a footnote in here that says judges, but also means leaders or rulers. Um, can also mean to vindicate. What does vindicate mean? To vindicate. Oh, vindicate. This seems such an easy word. <laughs> to clear. Okay. To uh, right all the wrong. Yeah. To exact re reconcile. That's that's kind of it, and it kind of goes into the the last one, which is to punish. So. <clears throat> There is this sense of, I am going to right wrongs, but also I'm going to punish the evildoers. Yeah. And as it turns out, that's exactly what all the 12 judges of the book of Judges do. And so <clears throat> what do the people who are called judges do in the book of Judges? Well, they do the verb, like they act. It's an action, not a title. <clears throat> um, they tend to be military rulers. Now... <clears throat> Contrast this with, you know, other leaders of Israel. What are some other leadership roles of Israel that we've seen in the Old Testament? Like king. Okay, king. Like Moses, they don't really. Okay. Prophet. Lead them into battle. Okay, so we have, we have king. We have prophet. We have um, what would you leader, right? <laughs> leader. Oh, like a. Um, Military leader like uh, Joab. Um, I don't know what you would call him. Uh, commander. Mm -hmm. uh, judge. 
What's what's another really important office that is associated with the temple? <coughs> priest. The priest. priest. So here we're seeing a very big difference <coughs> between the judges who are raised up to kind of deliver Israel from their enemies. <coughs> And the judges here. Now, there is some aspect of spiritual leadership, but um, <clears throat> here it's it's much less about the office of being a priest, <clears throat> and more about just getting the the nation back on track with the worship of of Yahweh. So <laughs> here's our map. Woo, right? Love I love drawing it as awful as it is. Um, <clears throat> so here is essentially, if you imagine modern day. Um, world. This is the modern nation of Israel right here. Okay. This would be the nation of Jordan. This would be Syria. And this tiny piece here would be the the small country of Lebanon. And then, of course, as you go south, there would be Egypt. There would be Turkey. And, of course, you know, on and on and on. During this period, remember, there aren't really states to speak of. There aren't, like, official countries with with stable borders and stable governments. It's really kind of very nomadic, um, conquer or be conquered. There's regions and tribes. And here we have the 12 tribes of Israel who have settled in this region that's largely called Canaan. Okay. And so here is, you know, of course, the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee. Um, Anyway, long story short is we have a region here that is inhabited by many, many kinds of peoples. Okay, um, the Israelites aren't really even a nation yet. They're just a bunch of people that are living in a region. Kind of nomadically, they have settled uh, after their, their trip back from Egypt and the Exodus. And so they're living with a lot of different kinds of people all around them. Here's the Philistines. <coughs> really right on the coast here. Um, geography is kind of interesting. So the coast here is flat plains, very fertile. <coughs> and then you have... They're basically hills, very small mountains that you call the Judean hills or foothills. Then you have this rift valley, essentially a great rift in the earth. And in it is, of course, the the, um, uh, Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, and so on and so forth. And then you have all these peoples that live here, Moabites, Ammonites, Aram, Aramites, which is also called Syria, and then Phoenicia up here. Um, which is where we get our alphabet. Anyway, long story short is, you definitely see that these these people, um, and the point I was trying to get at here is that this is all polytheistic. These are people who worship many gods. In fact, the Israelites were polytheistic, largely until after the Babylonian exile to, to a large degree. Meaning, <clears throat> although God or Yahweh told them, I am the only God of the universe, stop worshiping all of these false gods, they still continued to do so and hence suffered for it. Um, as we'll see here. So the spiritual leadership piece here is really about trying to get Israel back on track to worship the one and only true God of the universe who we call Jehovah or Yahweh. <coughs> or God. <coughs> yes, ma'am. I've heard it said that Yahweh is God's name. God is who he is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, being humans and our limited capacity for understanding we we have to give him a name right we we call him god but it's important today that when we say god we know who we're all kind of talking about especially as christians but at the time if we had called him god your neighbor would have been like which one (laughs) so it was really important back then to have a name for him 
So he says, well, then you can call me Yahweh or you can call me I am or, or what have you. <clears throat> so the problem here is that all of these people are worshiping all these different gods <clears throat> or goddesses. And these, these judges are really concerned with two very important things, protecting the people of Israel from their enemies and getting people back onto a monotheistic worship of Yahweh. <clears throat> That's basically it. <clears throat> there are, in fact, two, two or three, well, I would say there are three, main <clears throat> gods that the, <clears throat> that the Israelites will struggle with and, and continue to worship up through the exile. And, and again, <clears throat> we can do our timeline here. <clears throat> If we do here, way back here is 2000 BC, the time of Abraham, 1000 BC, the time of David, King David, all the way to 1 BC, <clears throat> which is, you know, basically right before Jesus is born. We are really talking about this period right here from about 1400 BC to about 1100 BC, 1050, give or take. <clears throat> okay. Um, so there's no king yet. There is no nation of Israel. Um, and there are probably about, there are many gods and goddesses that the people of the Canaan region are worshiping. Name some of the big ones you've heard from the Bible. Baal. There you go. Right off the bat. Baal. Baal has different names. Baal is actually a term that means Lord. But he has himself different names. But we'll just call him Baal for today. What was he the god of? Probably sex. Um, we'll get to that. Fertility. We'll get to that. Not as much as some other things. And remember, too, this is also an important thing, is that you have to keep in mind that the, the gods and goddesses of the region that we know today, some of them would have been a local god that gained a lot of popularity but then took on some characteristics of neighboring gods. So it's all a little bit fuzzy. So, yes, what you said is kind of true, um, fertility, sex, and that kind of thing, but there was some big things that he was much more associated with. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's really associated with, I'll just say it, storms, um, thunder and lightning, Donner and Blitzen. <laughs> <laughs> And because of the storm god aspect, this was super important. What do storms bring to the earth that's really important? Rain. rain. And rain results in what? Life. Yeah. It results in life because it waters your crops. And so, kind of indirectly, fertility. <clears throat> this is really important. So, if you'll remember, we'll fast forward here a few years to the time of the, the kingdoms, the divided kingdoms, which lasted until about 586. During this period, we had a number of natural disasters that affected Israel, and they were called what? Famines. There are famines, and usually famines are caused by what? Lack of rain. Israel is in a place that is essentially very dry most of the year. If, if any of you have lived in places like Spain or the Middle East or California, this kind of Mediterranean climate is, you have very long stretches of hot, dry summers, spring and summer and fall, with three or four months in the winter of rain. 
So most of the year it's hot and dry, and during the winter, if you're lucky, you get enough rain and you can grow your crops. Well, the problem with climates like that, and anyone who's lived in places like California or Spain or Italy or those places is, what happens from year to year, there's a lot of variability. Some years, you may not get any rain at all. What happens when you don't get any rain at all? Do, do your wheat and oats and barley love to grow? And your figs? No, no, nothing grows and there's terrible famines. Gods serve a big purpose, a, a functional purpose in society. Why would people keep going back to worship Baal? <clears throat> they want to feed their families. They don't want to starve. They want to have a livelihood. Remember, 95% of all the people that live during this period are somehow tied to agriculture. That is the exact inverse of today, which may be less than 5%, at least in the West of people are associated in some way with agriculture is completely the opposite today. We forget how important farming was to these ancient societies. And so, you know, you look at your Bible and you go, you people are so stupid for worshiping this God, Baal, who obviously, to us, we go, what good did it ever do you to worship this God who obviously to us seems like a complete idiot to worship? But you have to remember, these were desperate times and desperate people look and say, well, this priest or this judge keeps telling me I need to worship Yahweh. However, it didn't rain last month, and last month was December, well, whatever, you know, in the Hebrew way of saying it. I've only got two months left. There has been no rain. My family has run out of our supplies. Nothing is growing. What are we going to do? In desperate times, people do desperate human things, and they go, fine, I'll go worship Baal, which seems to be very pervasive around here, and say, please make it rain. And then what happens? Maybe the rain does come. Maybe God shows favor on them. And they go, look, it rained. I worshiped Baal. And now you can see how hard it is for people to break that cycle. What other gods or goddesses are people worshiping here? Okay, here we go. Yep. Jeroth. This is, I believe this is Ishtar. Let me see here. Let me get this right. I don't want to screw this up because this is really important. Yeah. So, your Old Testament will have, in the Hebrew, there's two different goddesses that have very similar names because they were foreign goddesses that were transcribed into Hebrew, clumsily kind of. One is called Ashtaroth. There's, there's another goddess that's very, very popular. Starts with an A. Asherah. Asherah. <clears throat> so they're actually very different, although they have very similar sounding names. And then throughout a, you know, history, they've come to be kind of the, m mixed with their characteristics. Ashtaroth is a goddess of what Roger was talking about earlier. What was that? What did you say? Sex. Sex. There's no other way to put it. Every, other, every time you dig up one of Ashtaroth's or Ishtar's figures, she's naked and voluptuous and beautiful looking. She is the goddess of sex, of fertility, and <laughs> war. <laughs> It, it kind of goes hand in hand. I, I hate to say it. fair and love and war. Well, it's Asherah, my goddess, right? Asherah, we remember. Well, I, I, I just made that up. Asherah <laughs> is different. What do you remember from the Old Testament as far as the worship of Asherah? 
poles. Yes, she has these poles. <clears throat> now, it turns out, she has very similar characteristics here of fertility, sex. The Asherah poles were a place, again, this is, this is very similar stuff. If I worship a goddess of fertility, what is an act I'm engaging in physically to kind of promote that fertility? Sex. This stuff, <laughs> right? Where did people tend to engage in that kind of thing? In a temple, in a temple to this goddess. Now, <clears throat> these temples would be built, um, if they had a temple, there would be prostitutes. There would be prostitutes who, um, what you would go to that, that temple or that location, and in the case of the Asherah pole, it might just be a tree out in a field, or a pole that's been erected, that is erected to the, to the goddess either Ashtaroth or Asherah, and you would have sex there <clears throat> with a prostitute, and then the hope is that by doing this and consummating this, this connection with this goddess, that goddess would then have favor on you. And then you would have more agriculture. It would rain. Um, maybe you would have children if you were barren and you were not able to have kids. So they would do all of these detestable practices. But Asherah is also known by uh, another name as um, uh, the queen of heaven. <clears throat> this was a very <coughs> pervasive goddess, especially among the Israelites. Ashtaroth is very common in the entire Near East. Assyria, Mesopotamia, all the countries I've just mentioned, you will find Ashtaroth or Ishtar figurines. Asherah tends to be very focused here right in the Israelite region. So if Asherah is the queen of heaven, who is her king? Hmm? No. Yahweh. This was a really, really bad thing the Israelites did. Her consort was El, or who we would call Yahweh. It was believed that she was our God's wife. Now, how do you think that went over in God's mind? I ain't got no wife, right? Probably about as well as praying to Mary. Oh, good. Oh. Oh. I know. I know. We went there. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Sorry. Boom. <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, I mean, I, and I guess how I see it is that Mary has been elevated to a form of deity by man, and it's no different than any of these other. She's no more of a god than any of these false gods. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The problem is when you start to worship them. These got all of these three beings are worshipped. That doesn't make God very happy. God makes it very clear, I am God alone. There is no other God. It's part of his Ten Commandments. When you start worshiping beings, you put them on the same level as, as Jehovah God. And he doesn't like that. So now we get into the text, which is, the problem is, we have Israelite tribes worshiping false gods or goddesses <coughs> and uh, not remembering 
what their ancestors had taught them. Their ancestors, Moses and, and Joshua, brought them out of Egypt for 40 years, wandered in the desert. They may have settled over here in what we call Transjordan or the east side of Jordan for most of the 40 years. They may have encamped right here for about for, for, you know, 38 of those 40 years, give or take. They go through a whole cycle of a generation turnover, teaching the people who is the one true God of the universe, Yahweh, worship him and him alone. Then they move in to Canaan proper and they start to conquer Canaan as divinely um, ordered. And then things start to fall apart, why? Because then they, they die. The people who entered Canaan start to die, their children start to take over, and then what? They forget all about Yahweh. They forget all about Jehovah. Where does this sound familiar? <laughs> the good old U.S. of A. Yeah. One generation is all it takes, yeah. folks. One generation. We are one generation away from extinction. Okay. Why do you suppose God chose Canaan to be the promised land? Excellent. To Excellent me, I've never, I've never seen Canaan as being anything desirable. It's a great point, and you know what? I really don't have an answer for you. The only answer I can give you is that God said it was holy. And from the text, the only direct knowledge we know is that God says that this is a holy region that he has set aside for his holy people. <clears throat> And that his holy mountain, where he dwelled for thousands of years, essentially, before the period of Jesus and the New Covenant, was Mount Zion here in Jabus, or we call Jerusalem. Indirectly, we talked a little bit about why is this region so important last week. <clears throat> and if you remember the bigger picture of the, the whole um, Mediterranean and Near East, what did we say about kind of this whole area here? Arabia. It's a desert. It's a desert. And what did we say about a lot of the um, nations that were surrounding this region? Are they weak or are they strong? strong. Very strong. In Western civilization, some of the most mighty empires that have ever ruled the earth for any length of time have almost all come from the Mediterranean region. <clears throat> what does this make this region right here? <clears throat> That's the highway. It's the highway. It is the highway of Western civilization. <clears throat> what do you notice about highways? People travel highways. People travel them. A lot of them. A lot of people travel them. And what else? <clears throat> they... Some kings wouldn't let the Israelites pass through, even if they offered to stay right on the highway. What, what do you notice about about when you travel on a highway and sometimes like in the middle of nowhere, and let's, let's, let's use South Dakota. <laughs> I love South Dakota, don't get me wrong. <clears throat> but if you drive on the main highway through Rapid City in South Dakota, for like 200 miles, give or take, you see signs for what? Wall drug. Wall drug. <laughs> Literally every mile you see a sign for wall drug. <clears throat> How many people who travel on that main highway through South Dakota do you think stop at wall drug? <clears throat> Well, a lot of people, either because you've been beaten down uh, to death by the advertising and you're like, fine, I'll stop at Wall Drug, or because there's no other gas stations for 100 miles and you have no choice. <clears throat> when you stop off at Wall Drug, what do you tend to do? You buy things. Spend money. Say it again? Spend money. You spend money. Talk to people. You talk to people. 
You talk to people. Remember, folks, this is not the information age. This is not the age of Twitters and Facebooks and Googles or, or New York Times even. This is the age of the only information I have about the universe or the world comes from me talking to another human being face to face. Well, that's a crazy idea, right? <clears throat> if this is the highway of Western civilization, why would God strategically put his promised land right there? I'm guessing he's got a bigger picture in mind. He knows Jesus is going to be mm. coming. Okay. He knows that the best way to get the word out is to put Jesus right in the middle of all this traffic. Mm. I, I can't think of a better I mean, reason. It wasn't because Canaan was <clears throat> the garden spot of the world. No. Huh. He could have made Hawaii <coughs> or something like Hawaii the, the promised mm -hmm. land. That wasn't his promised land wasn't for creature comforts for the That's Israelites. Right. That's right. He had a whole different purpose. It was probably to uh, spread the gospel about him. You know, what better way you know that's mm -hmm. why he picked the Jews to to be his vessel. <coughs> but ironically <coughs> when they went to spy the land mm -hmm. They said it's flowing with milk and mm -hmm. honey, and it's like so fertile. And well, how many of them said that? Two. Yeah. Ten were bad, and two were good. No, we're not saying that this is a, a this is a desolate place by any means. We're not saying that by any stretch. <clears throat> but I think I think the point is valid, which is if you are really talking about, did he do it because it's a tropical paradise? It's not a tropical paradise. Did he do it because this is, this is the cradle of civilization? No, there is no evidence that really any great technological or philosophical achievements in human history really ever came out of this region here. Um, you know, what's left? <laughs> what's left? The people here are corrupt. It's poor. It's not the greatest place to grow food. It's, it's really average as far as everything else goes, except for this one feature, which is, it is the highway of Western civilization. Well, God said to them before they entered in Deuteronomy uh -huh. that if they followed him, they would never be hungry. They would have more mm -hmm. than enough. They, would, they could rest their land mm -hmm. every seven years because the sixth year mm -hmm. they would have way more than they needed. Mm -hmm. And every and 50 fact, years, they would take two years off because mm -hmm. of the, the year of Jubilee. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> And so the fact that they had to resort to like trying to worship Baal to get rain mm -hmm. when God, if they wouldn't just follow mm -hmm. him, he promised them, you know, basically overwhelming, mm -hmm. like, bounty. They would be the lender, yep. not the borrower? Yeah. And so, and that's, that's the, the, but that's the point, right? Which is, I'm in an area that is not guaranteed to have those things. I have to rely on God. That's the point, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it's not Brazil. It's not. It's not. You know. Uh, a, it's not Thailand or Indochina or something. It is a place I have to depend on God if I want rain and food and agriculture to grow. So what happens? Sometimes, most of the time, we find they don't follow Him. They take thing, take matters in their own hands. Yeah. Ooh, that's good too. Yeah. That's yeah. This is exactly right. Yeah. Well, jo what has Jehovah done for me lately? Nothing. So go get me a Baal idol. Let me go worship. Well, even Abraham and Sarah did the same thing. Here, take my maidservant Hagar. 
right? You know? It's like God said you're gonna have a child, and not the way. He dot dot dot. He took yada yada yada. Yeah, it's been two months. I don't have a child. Um, <laughs> it's kind of true, yeah. right? Hagar, come on over here. <laughs> Speaking of that, let's go ahead and get into the word, and we're going to start with two. And uh, due to time, because I am I am very long winded, um, I think I'm just going to have um, have you guys read the entire chapter, uh, one through uh, twenty three. Okay, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up from Egypt and led you to the land I promised to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my agreement with you, but you must not make an agreement with the people who live in this land. You must destroy their altars, but you did not obey me. How could you do this? Now I tell you, I will not force out the people in this land. They will be your enemies and their gods will be a trap for you. So after the angel gave Israel this message from the Lord, they cried loudly. So they named the place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Then Joshua sent the people back to their land. The people served the Lord during the lifetime of Joshua and during the lifetimes of the older leaders who lived after Joshua and who had seen what great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in his own land at Timnath Sarah in the mountains of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After these people had died, their children grew up and they did not know the Lord or what he had done for Israel. So they did what the Lord said was wrong, and they worshipped the Baal idols. They quit following the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt, and they began to worship the gods of the people who lived around them, and that made the Lord angry. The Israelites quit following the Lord and worshipped Baal and Ashtoreth. The Lord was angry with the people of Israel, so he handed them over to robbers who took their possessions. He let their enemies who lived around them defeat them. They could not protect themselves. When the Israelites went out to fight, they always lost because the Lord was not with them. The Lord had sworn to them this would happen, so the Israelites suffered very much. Then the Lord chose leaders called judges who saved the Israelites from the robbers. But the Israelites did not listen to their judges. They were not faithful to God, but worshipped other gods instead. Their ancestors had obeyed the Lord's commands, but they quickly turned away and did not obey. When their enemies hurt them, the Israelites cried for help. So the Lord felt sorry mm -hmm. for them and sent judges to save them from their enemies. The Lord was with those judges all their lives. But when the judges died, the Israelites again sinned and worshipped other gods. They became worse than their ancestors. The Israelites were very stubborn and refused to change their evil ways. So the Lord became angry with the Israelites. He said, These people have broken the agreement I made with their ancestors. They have not listened to me. I will no longer defeat the nations who were left when Joshua died. I will use them to test Israel, to see if Israel will keep the Lord's commands as their ancestors did. In the past, the Lord had permitted those nations to stay in the land. He did not quickly force them out or help Joshua's army defeat them. Thank you. <clears throat> this formula will be repeated over and over and over 12 times, <laughs> at least, in, in the book of Judges. People do evil. They forget about who Jehovah is. They say the practices of the past are old-fashioned and our ancestors were idiots we're going to do what we want to do <clears throat> and again every time I say something here think about our modern day <clears throat> then God does what <laughs> he allows them to be oppressed to do what to them to teach them a lesson but also to do what it's very specific here to be conquered he allows them to be oppressed to test them so they can test them. 
God allows oppression for testing. I am going to see who of you repent. I am going to see who of you change your ways and say, you know what? We were wrong. God is right. He is the only God of the universe. Save us. And some, I'm going to say this, this is very clear, some people repent and cry out for help and say, you know what, God? We do trust you. Save us. Please save us. God is merciful. What does he do? Every time they cry out for help, he does what? He raises up a leader to help them, to help their military situation and help with their religious apostasy. He says here that he's moved to pity. Pity. By their groaning. When Jesus is confronted um, by people who are sick or suffering or dying, the Greek word there is splagnizomai. It literally means to be moved, moved from the depths of his bowels with pity. He feels so bad for these people that he wants to help them and he heals them. God is a merciful, loving creator. Our cries for help do not go unanswered. We do not have a robot that we serve in heaven. And he acts to help us. What do you guys take away from this passage here? I think that what I, what I, as you're reading it, they're the, um, what word am I trying to say? Um, Their prosperity is directly a result of them focusing and keeping God at the center of their lives. And that that God is present, may not be seen, but he's present, and he, he's the one that's holding the borders together and uh, keeping people away, keeping enemies, you know, defeating their enemies. Um, and then when they he doesn't do that, it's kind of like when Moses was raising his arms up, you know, as, as long as he could, kept his arms up, Israelites were winning the war. Um, but when they let their guard down and start worshiping um, other gods or making uh, covenants with uh, the people, that's when... <coughs> He's not holding the borders. So, um, I don't know. I think about how God is very sad. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. He tells them the truth and then they yeah. pervert it. Mm-hmm. <coughs> you know? Mm-hmm. They allows, you know, they listen to Satan, you know? He likes to take truth and then twist it. Yep. Like, yep. You know, God probably has a wife. You have a wife. So why don't you, you know, like twisting, you know, to make God fit us instead mm-hmm. of It's subtle. <clears throat> yes, I, I like that. It's subtle. Verse 20. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I have laid down. When you read in the Old Testament, the Hebrew translated to this or that nation, who is that person usually referring to? The nations of the world. Everyone but Israelites. Gentiles. That nation has sinned against me. That nation has corrupted my people. My people are my people. But here God is so grieved and it's subtle. 
He's, he's not even calling them my people. He's calling it this nation, this group of people who are really upsetting me. I think that's significant. It's becoming so blurred who the people of God really are, it's hard to even call them his people. I also see a pattern, though, of, of um, second chances. Mm. And so when these, these people truly mm -hmm. repent and turn from their sins, then God makes everything better. And then the next generation comes along yeah. and they screw it up. Yeah. Then they repent and God comes back and has mercy on them. Mm -hmm. So it happens not just once, it's mm -hmm. just over and over mm -hmm. and over and over. Um, so while you've got on the one, one side God's judgment, you've got the other side his mercy and yep. his desire to forgive. Mm -hmm. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. Let's, let's finish out by doing three. Now we ha haven't actually talked about a judge yet. Let's do that. Um, let's go to chapter 3, and we'll read all of that, and it's, you know, 31 verses. That's easy. These are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test those Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. These are the nations, the Philistines, those living under the five Philistine rulers, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites, living in the mountains of Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebohamath. These people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands of the Lord given to their ancestors through Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and they intermarried with them. Israelite sons married their daughters, and Israelite daughters were given in marriage to their sons, and the Israelites served their gods. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot about the Lord their God, and they served the images of Baal and Asherah poles. Then the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over to King Cushan Rishathiam. <laughs> okay. Of, yeah, something like that. Of Aram Naharim, and the Israelites served Cushan Rishathim for eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Othniel the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he became Israel's judge. He went to war against King boy, Cushan of Aram, and the Lord gave Othniel victory over him. So there was peace in the land for 40 years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord gave King Eglam of Moab control over the Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the, Ammoni the Ammonites and Amalekites as allies, and then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served, the, served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. 
His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. <laughs> After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stoned idols near Gilgal, he turned back. He came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. So the king commanded his servants be quiet, and he sent them all out of the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels emptied. Then Ehud closed, the lock, closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. After Ehud was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room, so they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, passing the stone idols on his way to Sariah. When arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded a call to arms. Then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him, and the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped, so Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. After Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, rescued Israel. He once killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Thank you. Very good, sir. This is one of the classic stories of the Old Testament. Ehud uh, attacking Eglon and sticking the knife in so far that the fat of the guy went all the way around his hand and his guts come out and all this other stuff. Um, it's interesting. This, this has absolutely nothing to do with anything. But it's interesting that they note that he was left-handed. <clears throat> Did you catch that mm -hmm. reference? Yeah. This is one of only three references in the entire Bible to someone being left-handed. <clears throat> now, scholars are not exactly sure why this is so important. Obviously, um, you know, today in the population, something like, I don't know, what is it, 10%? The population, give or take, is left-handed. Is that what the number is? 10 or 20%? Okay. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's not insignificant. Um, every time someone is mentioned as being left-handed in the Bible, it's in a military context. And guess what tribe they're from? Every time. Benjamin. Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin. Why? I don't know. Well, my, uh, mm -hmm. my concordance here says that um, many men of the tribe of Benjamin were left-handed, mm -hmm. and it gave them an advantage in war. <clears throat> it's funny you should say that, because I have a semi-scholarly article that my friend at work gave me about this very thing. The, the curious case of the left-handed Benjamites, genetics in the Bible. Hmm. 
it's interesting because the authors say, why is this? Why is it that that being left-handed is either important or that they all come from the tribe of Benjamin. Of course, these authors want to say there's some kind of genetic component to it. Maybe, maybe not. Um, others will say that it might have given them a unique advantage in battle because if <coughs> battle, if, if, if at least 80% of the population is right-handed, most battle tactics are meant for shield on the left, sword on the right. <coughs> battle formations are meant to protect yourself in a, in a right-handed dominant stance. But if you are left-handed, that's asymmetric. It's asymmetric warfare and may have provided some kind of advantage because um, it's kind of like the, uh, the left-handed throwing uh, uh, quarterbacks uh, have to have their, their line protection reversed so that they're protected on the right where they are blind, their blind spot, instead of on the left. And so since battle uh, formations and soldiers are not accustomed to a reverse of their battle tactics that sometimes left-handedness may have provided some kind of uh, advantage. Maybe Roger you can look into this for us being a, a, a Air Force guy and tell us if this even makes sense. I don't know what it means. I think it's interesting. <clears throat> Throughout all of human history, has a variance from the norm been a good thing, <laughs> or accepted? Yeah, you know. This also says that likely the king's bodyguard only checked him for a right-handed weapon. That's good. Overlooking the left-handed good. weapon. Yeah, that's good. Because he took his left hand. He said it was over on his right thigh, right? So maybe most people have their sword here, like to yep. you know. I don't know. Is that the stance? Is that Roger? Is that how you do it? I don't have a sword. Oh, okay. You would, if you're right-handed, you can't pull it out of your scabbard. If it's it makes sense, right? You'd be like, side. okay, hold on a minute. Okay, there. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. It it's would go right out. Terry. If you look at Judges 20, it says that there's uh, 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. That's good. That's They're all from the That's tribe good. of Benjamin. Those Benjamites, dude, they're like special forces. Yeah. Special forces. <laughs> Israel, special forces, tribe of Benjamin. What else do we notice here? Um, well, we're starting to name, look at this, we're starting to name the big areas, the big tribes that are our enemies around us and we're defeating them, Moabites, mm -hmm. Ammonites. Um, the words that we were struggling with here are Mesopotamia. <clears throat> Who was in Padan Aram, do you remember from Genesis? Why is that important? Yes, yes. This is where Abram and Terah, his father, eventually stayed and never went on to Canaan, and where a pool of Abram's or Abraham's family were from that they drew their wives from. <clears throat> this is all part of this Mesopotamian region. Um, we have Aram or Syria. We have the Amalekites. Those Amalekites, they're tenacious. We've, Moses fought them. I think they were one of the first battles that Moses had, if I'm not mistaken. Is that the five kings? Five kings are in, in, in the Philistines, and it's funny. No. This is uh, Ekron, uh, Ashdod, Ashkelon. These are the cities of Philistia. There's five. The word that we, we have in here as the, the lords, is it lord? Let's see here. Let's find it here. I think it's the five lords of the Philistines. 
Yes, five rulers of the Philistines. This is a funny Hebrew word. Again, I'm not an expert, and this is what I'm being told, that this word in Hebrew is really a Hebrew word that sounds just like the word for axle. So it's thought that this is actually a Philistine word, not a Hebrew word. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, they translate it as tyrannus. They are the tyrants, the five tyrants of the Philistines. And again, that might be descended from this group of people we call the Sea People, the people who we think became the Philistines who settled here. So these five tyrants of the kings of, of, of the Philistines who were never conquered by the Israelites, by the way, fully, they're fighting them too. We have three judges who are mentioned here, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Shamgar is an interesting one because it's just kind of thrown in here. In different ancient manuscripts, the Shamgar reference comes after Samson's story. So it's not entirely clear when Shamgar or even for any of that, kind of any of these people really reigned. <clears throat> but the fact is they did reign and every one of them is talked about in a military, a military situation and to some degree a spiritual one. Shamgar, the only thing we know, after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Now, is this where, the, now do we know that the Philistines had iron at this point? It's thought they did. So, they killed mm -hmm. them with a sharp stick. <laughs> That's right, what is an ox goad? A goad is a stick or a whip that is used to, whoosh, you know, come on ox, plow my field, go, go, right? And Jesus famously says, you cannot kick against the goads, right? Um, yeah, he killed him with a stick. You know, Samson killed with the jawbone of a donkey, right? Uh, if you are empowered by God to do something, it doesn't matter what tools you have. He will give you victory. Yeah. That's the answer here. It's like the um, jawbone Elisha's of the... servant. Yeah. You know, when he's scared because the army surrounding the, the town, mm -hmm. and Elisha says, Lord, open my servant's eyes so yep. you can see that those who are for us are mm -hmm. Against us, you know, because mm -hmm. God's army is surrounding, yep. you know, Shamgar. Shamgar. <laughs> with his stick. Yep. And he, you know, he's going out and fighting for it. It's almost like a comedy. If you, if you had iron weapons and you are the Philistines and no one has ever really defeated you, and you see this guy coming at you with a stick, what are you bound to do? You're bound to start laughing your butt off. <laughs> okay, here he comes. Okay, let's fight him. Ready? Oh, watch out, guys. Here he comes. And he kills 600 of them. <laughs> That's it, Lorna. That's it. Lorna, thank you so much, sweetheart. That is exactly the point of this whole thing. Time and again, the authors of the Old Testament want to make it very clear. It is not the technology that won the battle. It is not the brilliance of the commander who won the battle. It is not the overwhelming numbers of the people in the army who won the battle. Who won the battle? God. Well, it goes all the way back to when they walked marched around Jericho. You know, they had this grand plan, we're going to march around six times, and on the seventh, we're going to march around seven times and blow yep. the trumpets, and you'll see. And uh, it's like, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. And he's like, that's, that's, that's our plan. You know, oh, not only that, we're going to have the priests go ahead of us. Yep. They're going to be, not, not the military people, but the priests going to be in the front of the uh, in front of us. From the Jericho's perspective, it's like a Monty Python film. They're sitting on the on the ramparts laughing their butts off yeah. at these guys, right? Mm -hmm. Whoa, what, what are you doing? <laughs> right? And then, crap. That's the movie I was thinking of. <laughs> the rabbit. <laughs> the, the rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> this is venomous. Um, 
Jericho, the city of palms, right? And, you know, Gilgal, I don't know. It might be here. Some archaeologists think they found it. This is, this is big stuff, folks. God is the one who wins the battle, hmm. not us. It's interesting they mentioned 80 years of peace, which seemed uh, to be a really long time mm -hmm. back then. I mean, yeah. it's completely two generations mm -hmm. of peace. So it's as though the second generation actually learned something. Ah, okay. First. Okay, very good. Any final thoughts or comments before we wrap up today? What do you take away from this lesson? Worry, God is strong. He's always strong. That's good. We can depend on him. Okay. He wants us to, to be depend on him. Yes. I guess no matter how insignificant or weak or small you think you are, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Mm -hmm. If you uh, seek God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, I mean, if, if God's for us, who can be against us? Nobody. And I think a lot of times we put a lot of uh, emphasis on our um, what we can do, what we, what we bring to the table. And uh, if we focus on it too much, like you get overconfident or... Um, you don't. You're not. You don't have the uh, um, the ability. You know, it depends on. You can be overconfident and be confident in yourself, or you don't have any confidence at all. But uh, if you have confidence in God, I mean, what else do you need? That's good. That's good. And when you do win, who gets the glory for that? Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's. That's the other variable. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Gideon, when he had his 300 people that killed, I don't know how many thousands mm -hmm. of Amorites, I think it was. Um, you know, 300 people and with pots and torches. You know, they didn't have any of the tools and the mm -hmm. tools of warfare, um, but they had God on their side. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he, he said he was the most insignificant, smallest, and the smallest nation, which I think was Benjamin. Mm -hmm. And they ended up killing... Um, well, trusting in God that He took care of it, and uh, like that's us, you know. Mm -hmm. When we we think we um, we don't have the tools necessary or the the right words to say when we're at work or at school or wherever we are, you know, if we're just faithful to God, He's the one that's moving ahead of us. He's already been there and done that, and He has our back, and uh, we can do great things through Him. Excellent. This pattern will be repeated. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, come back next week. Uh, we'll talk about this again. The stories are a little different. The theme is very similar. We'll see about how this will continue. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, again, there's some great stories in the book of Judges. Um, but time and again, you know, it's kind of one of those things. Um, if you tell someone something seven times, a psychologist will tell you, well, then they'll remember it, right? Six times, they won't. Uh, it has to be seven times, maybe here 12 times. Uh, the point is, time and again, God is telling us over and over, I'm patient with you. I understand if you fall away, you need to repent. You need to come back to me and I will save you. So join us next week and we'll pick it up uh, for uh, the next chapter. Thank you.